Did you know that the 4th of July is on a Thursday this year? That's going to be a full weekend of fun out on the deck. Four days. But if your deck isn't what it used to be and you aren't using it for great family gatherings, you need to call my friends at All Weather Decks. All Weather Decks is a 24-time winner of the Angie Super Service Award. And they probably help one of your neighbors. Click on the map link at allweatherdecks.net. Call All Weather Decks today at 913-206-1974 or go to allweatherdecks.net and mention you heard it on 810. Call now and relax. We are back with another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I am your host, Jack Johnson. Kyle Collier back on the board in the studio because we are down here live at the Power and Light District right next door to McFadden's and right across the street from, of course, the T-Mobile Center where we just saw the conclusion of Texas Tech in West Virginia with the Mountaineers winning by 16 and tipping off here rather shortly will be the Bedlam Series round three between the Oklahoma Sooners and the Oklahoma State Cowboys. And we'll have plenty of college basketball to get into tonight. We'll also be joined by Jordan Foote at the tail end of the show because we had a little bit of a shortened schedule tonight starting about 15 minutes later than we were supposed to be on the air. But not to worry, we are joined right now on the phone lines as we are every single Wednesday from 8 to 9, of course, a little bit of time constraints this time. We're shortened this time down, and Joel's right not – he's not next to me this time at the Hollywood Casino. He's back on the phone lines, and it's Joel Penfield from the KC Sports Network. Joel, thanks for taking time out of your night to come on and talk some Royals baseball with your Cowboys tipping off in just about 20 minutes or so. I, I am nervous as hell for this game, <laughs> so it's hard to beat a team three times, but uh, I'm glad to be talking some Royals with you finally. I love talking Chiefs uh, there for our, our time together every Wednesday, but – Baseball is my first love, so I'm happy to get back on and talk about that. Well, we'd just be beating a dead horse at this point if we continue to talk Chiefs, 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 and not give any mention to the Royals, who are by far and away the hottest team right now in the Cactus League. And if you're into watching some baseball right now and it's not the WBC Classic, you can watch the Royals over on Bally as they are absolutely laying the wood to the Chicago White Sox, 12 to nothing in the middle of the fourth inning. Dylan Sees was pulled in the first inning, went back out in the second because you're allowed to do that in spring training. You don't have to come out immediately and exit the game if you have a rough start in the first. But the Royals tagged him for 11 runs, and that was Dylan Sees, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball, not only American League last year, but I would say all of baseball. And, Joel, my first question is, what can you take away from a performance like this in spring training? I know we always want to throw away spring training stats, guys playing well, guys playing poorly, but I feel like when you tag a guy for 11 runs and with as good as the Royals have been in spring training, there's at least something you have to take away, right? I think to a degree, you can't really look game to game and, and have these you know very specific takes. Of, of what you believe the team is going to be. So you've got to look at it from a broader perspective. And what I'm seeing is a team that is bought into the process that Matt Cotrero, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bowe, and Alex Zumbala put together, uh, both on the pitching side and on the hitting side. And it, it's paying dividends early. Is it going to mean the Royals are going to be 15 wins better than next year, probably, or than last year? Probably not. But I think they at least seem like they could be eight to ten wins better. At least it, it feels that way right now. The impact of the coaching staff is very clearly uh, a positive one. And I, I'm pretty excited for what I'm seeing right now overall from 
for both sides of uh, both the pitching and the offense early on. One of the guys that has quietly had a fantastic spring has been Hunter Dozier, and I saw David Lesky tweeting about this about 20 minutes ago, that his barrel is staying a little bit longer through the zone, and I think for Hunter Dozier, that's big. It's a minor adjustment there, but we've seen Hunter Dozier at least have one successful season at the major league level. Uh, For you, Joel, when you look at a guy like Hunter Dozier, who of course right now to the Royals fan base is probably public enemy number one. You want a guy like Michael Garcia to start at third, maybe a guy like Nate Eaton. But I think right now all signs are pointing to Hunter Dozier being the opening day third baseman for the Kansas City Royals. So what does he have to do early on this season to ensure that he stays there past June or July? He's just got to stay consistent. And that's the biggest thing. Like We we know that the glove is it gives it all a lot to be desired. We don't need to beat that horse because We've, we've been there pretty much our entire time talking together on the radio uh, on your show. But very, like, I, this is the first time I've really gotten to, time, I've gotten to sit down and watch Hunter Dozier at bats, one of the first times this season. And his setup looks a little different. He looks like the bat, the bat's off his shoulder. He's a little more upright in the box. The swing is shorter, like his hands are shorter, which allows the barrel to stay in the zone for a lot longer. He looks more comfortable. He's not diving at those breaking balls that are down in a way, which was pretty much the book on him for the last couple of years, was you throw a fastball in, he'll probably beat you, but just stay away and throw breaking stuff, and you're going to strike him out. And that's really what it's been, the story for the last few years. So it seems like he has really made legitimate changes. He's bought in with what Alex Zumwalt uh, has you know, for him. And i, I got to give credit where credit's due, even if I'm not the biggest Hunter Dozier fan. He's proving why the organization believes that he can be the everyday third baseman to start this season, uh, and it feels deserved at this point. And i got to give him credit. He's, he's come in and put in the work in the offseason, and if he stays healthy, you know, maybe, there's a certain, there, maybe there's a bounce-back opportunity. I'm not going to sit here and wish for his downfall because I prefer to see Michael Garcia, Nate Eaton, uh, Nick Lawson play third base. If he's earned the spot, then I think it's a good opportunity for the team. Now, offensively, you've seen this team really thrive. A guy like Michael Massey with a grand slam in the first inning tonight. He's been thriving in the spring. Hunter Dozier, of course. Yeah, (laughs) Michael Massey has has been maybe the top name for the Royals in the spring. Hunter Dozier, great, as we just talked about. Michael Garcia has been great. Nick Lofton's had some good at-bats. Edward Olivares. And even guys before they went to the WBC, like Vinny Pasquantino and Salvador Perez, were doing damage. But I want to look at this pitching staff, and more importantly, the guy that took the bump tonight, being Brad Keller. And the talk of Brad Keller this spring has been his new curveball, which is new to his arsenal. We've seen Brad Keller sort of tinker with a sinker, his, his hard fastball that he has, of course, and then that sweeping slider. But now adding a curveball to that arsenal, Joel, what can that do for a guy like Brad Keller? He's predominantly a ground ball pitcher. He likes to work quickly, but he's never really had a great pitch selection. He doesn't have a lot of pitches to choose from. And I know in the new age of baseball, you want to have about one or two really good pitches. And we think his fastball is likely his best pitch. Could his curveball maybe be his second best pitch that takes him to the next level? It certainly has worked for him. And I'm glad that he was able to go to driveline and get that work in and find something different. Uh, get that a legitimate third pitch besides a uh, fastball and a slider. He's thrown a changeup, but it's not not always great. So, you know, it just adds a third pitch in there, takes some pressure off the need to throw a changeup. But from what I've seen this during spring and these outings, I don't know what they did with Brad Keller this offseason. I don't know what version of Brad Keller they're throwing out there, but this guy's pretty good. 
he's awesome. I, I have a ton of optimism for what Brad Keller is bringing, and obviously the contract year is undefeated, so there's a certain amount of that where he's going to be playing for a contract uh, moving forward. But man, he, he's proving a lot of us, a lot of the doubters wrong uh, that that were out on him. I was out on him to a degree, but very clearly, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bowe have found something, and some of the work he was able to do outside of the Royals organization uh, is paying dividends early on and. He's going to be in the rotation. Seems like he's going to be a really solid part of the rotation early on. So I'm pretty happy with what I've seen, not just from Brad, but just the pitching staff as a whole, man. It's amazing what some really good coaching and the modern processes of uh, of handling pitchers, you know, it's amazing what that does. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9. It'll be a little bit short tonight. We'll have Joel on for about another 5 to 10 minutes talking some Royals baseball. We are down here live at the Power and Light District. If you can hear the loud music coming out of my microphone, it's because we're right next door to McFadden's and also right next door to the T-Mobile Center where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State will be tipping off here very shortly. I thought this was an interesting stat on Twitter, Joel, and I want to get your thoughts on it. It's from Royals Weekly on Twitter, and they are bringing up the Royals' uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio so far in spring training and why it's such a big deal, because last year, the top 10 teams in strikeout-to-walk ratio in Major League Baseball all were in the postseason. So you had the Mets, you had the Rays, you had the Dodgers, you had the Astros, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, Cleveland, Seattle, Atlanta, and the Giants. They did not actually get to the playoffs, but they did win 81 games. So still a very efficient efficient team that was pretty much uh, using their pitching staff to get them to those 81 wins. So when you're looking at this pitching staff, how vitally important is it that they can have maybe even a top 15 strikeout-to-walk ratio? Because as we just pointed out with those teams right there, all of it resulted in postseason success. It's significant. For the four years that they were led by Cal Eldred uh, in that pitching staff, the Royals were at the bottom or near the bottom of strikeout-to-walk ratio every single year from 2018 through 2022. So there was obviously a correlation that whatever was going on there wasn't working. Last season, the Royals had the worst K-to-walk ratio at 2.02. And that was by, I think, 13. I think the next closest was like 2.20. So it was by a pretty wide margin uh, when you're looking at this. So far this spring, and this is not including the game tonight, the Royals have 124 strikeouts to 38 walks in 12 games. That is a 3.26 K-to-walk ratio, which if my if I remember the, the standings correctly, I don't have them in front of me, they, that would put them seventh in baseball last season at that ratio. Do I think that is a sustainable number over 162 games with a okay pitching staff? No. But if they can sit around – to eight, which would put them right in the middle of the pack in Major League Baseball, that's a significant improvement and a testament to how quickly Zach Bove and Brian Sweeney have been able to install their program and the whole raid the zone mantra. Guys are clearly bought into it, and it's clearly working. So I, I hope that uh, they're able to sustain that as we move into the regular season coming up here in a couple of weeks. And I want to stick on the topic of this game tonight. Right now, the Royals are up 12 to nothing over the Chicago White Sox in the top of the fifth inning. If you didn't tune in early on, they tagged Dylan Seas for 11 runs. He didn't even record three outs tonight. And I think there is at least a little bit of something you can take away from an offensive performance like this. But I was very intrigued in seeing the spring training and Royals debut 
of Jackie Bradley Jr., who just always felt like he was going to end up in a Royals uniform. Well, he absolutely impressed tonight, two for two, with a ringing double into the gap, nearly actually went out, which would have made Dylan C's start that much worse. But when you look at a guy like Jackie Bradley Jr., he has not been the same since leaving Boston. He wasn't very good in Milwaukee. He wasn't very good in Toronto last year. But what he does provide is defensive value. What does JBJ have to do, Joel, to make this team out of camp? He's got to keep hitting. I'm not convinced that he's going to make the opening day roster. Uh, I think the outfield, at least as it, it's presented right now, seems fairly set uh, with MJ, Kyle Isbell, Emeril Lavaris, possibly a Nate Eaton, and Frondel Reyes. I think he has really impressed. He's come in and matched the ball, which is all you need from a guy like that. Uh, as a, a non-roster invitee to camp, it feels like uh, with the way they can consist, consistently put him in the middle of the order in these lineups with the A squad, that Bruno Reyes is probably going to be on the opening day roster and play a lot of outfield or DH for this team. It's I think it's a competition really between Nate Eaton and Jackie Bradley Jr. And I would lean probably Nate Eaton just because of the positional versatility, play some infield, play some outfield. And Jack Bradley Jr., since 2020, has not been good. He hasn't hit the ball well at all. And I don't know if it's worth having just a an absolute hole at the bottom of your order, at least how it's looked over the last couple of years with Jack Bradley Jr. And a, a, he's a solid defender. I'm not going to discredit him for that. But I would rather have at least some semblance of offense along with that, and I don't know if JBJ can provide that at this point. If he would have told me in 2019 that Jackie Bradley Jr. was on the Royals, it would have made a ton of sense. But in 2023, I, I just don't know if it's, it's there at this point. Now, if you want to, if, if he likes the organization, feels like it's a good fit, and he's willing to go down to Omaha and mentor some of these younger players and, you know, have some opportunity down there and it's the first sign of trouble for any of these guys or there's an injury that happens, he can come up. I think he can, he can service just fine for a two to three week stretch. But I, I don't know if he is going to be a, a long-term or even short-term fit in Kansas City to start the season. We're on the line with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network talking some Royals baseball. Joel, I know you saw this tweet from a couple of days ago from Foolish Baseball on Twitter and bringing up blocks above average for the Royals' very own MJ Melendez. He ranked dead last in baseball last year among catchers in blocks above average. I want to point out this stat first before I give you his final number, just for the listeners out there. Second to worst in baseball was Eric Haas of the Detroit Tigers, negative 11 blocks above average. MJ Melendez bottomed the group with negative 25 in blocks above average. Joel, whose fault is this? Is this MJ Melendez maybe not fine-tuning his skills behind the plate? I saw some rumblings last night on Twitter of, well, he really did bulk up and focused a lot on hitting Murray defensively, where that was his shining point of his game early on in his career. That kind of faded away. Is it on the Royals for bouncing in between catcher and left field and right field? I mean, who can we really blame for a guy like MJ Melendez, who was supposed to be the next catching great in Kansas City behind Salvador Perez, and now you come to find out he's defensively, by every single metric, one of the worst catchers in baseball. You know, I'm not going to try and put blame on anybody. I think it's just one of those things that sometimes it just doesn't work out, and that's just the way baseball goes sometimes. There was a lot of reports, and at least every report that I had heard is that he was fantastic behind the plate, going back to A-ball, that that was going to be the calling card was, his bat may not play early on, but the defense is going to be really good. And it turned out it was actually the opposite. 
where the defense was very, very bad, and he turned out to be a very major league hitter very quickly. At least what, what I appreciate is he ha- he's still a supreme athlete that you know is willing to move to another position and make it work. So there is something to be said for that. He could be super stubborn and say, no, I'm a catcher, and that's all I want to do. It doesn't seem like that's the case. So I still think there will be opportunities for him to catch. I don't think Freddie, like as, as awesome as Freddie Fermin has been and as great as he is defensively, I don't think if they need to give Salvador Perez a couple days off, Fermin is going to be in the lineup every single day or you know even more than twice a week. So there will still be opportunities for MJ to catch. I don't think there will be a lot. And it, does, it takes a little bit of pressure off of them and just allows them to hit, play the outfield, go catch every, you know, you know, a few times a week, get maybe uh, Paul having Paul Hoover as the bench coach uh, and a, a catching guru. Maybe there's something there that they could work with and if they still believe that MJ can be a catcher in the future. But if not, I think he has a great opportunity to be an average, average to above average outfielder, and he's going to hit. So. At the end of the day, he's found a way in the lineup. It's not blocking anything right now, no pun intended. And I think, if nothing else, he's going to be your leadoff hitter. He's going to make it work, and we go from there. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9. But, of course, as we've mentioned, a little bit of a short edition tonight because we only have an hour and a half Long show here on Sports Radio 810 WHB. So last couple questions for you here, Joel, and this one's going to be more of a fun one. We could sit here and go back and forth and think about this team's path to 81 wins or how they can be competitive. We can go over all of that and be realistic. But this question, Joel, is to have your mind wander a little bit, to think outside the box, to have some fun with this. So my simple question to you is if there's any path for this team to get to the postseason, how does it happen maybe step by step? Um, shoot. <laughs> everybody overperforms. Like, it would probably take everybody hitting their 100th percentile outcome for that to happen. Uh, Cleveland would have to just completely fall apart. Chicago would probably have to fall apart. Like, it would, it would take everybody in the division having career worst years for the most part. And then, and the Royals just absolutely play above their head more than they did in 2014. But, you know, crazier things have happened in baseball. So I'm not going to act like there it's a impossibility that the Royals make the playoffs, but I'm not going to sit here and act like it's likely. Either. Yeah, I think that's everybody's assumption right now. And, again, it's not me coming on the air here and saying, well, this team's going to be postseason bound. But sometimes, uh, before opening day, you have that optimism. It doesn't matter who's on the roster. You want to get excited about the team. One of the ways to excite yourself about this team is finding a way to the postseason joel last question for you non-royals related or i guess you can say slightly royals related because they are playing in this event but the world baseball classic kicked off last night you had panama and the kingdom of the netherlands with the kingdom of the netherlands winning four to two over cuba and there's going to be more games on in the next couple of days into the weekend the u.s plays on saturday against great britain at 8 p.m., you can watch Shohei Otani if you want to get up early in the morning at 5 a.m. Here coming up here in a couple of hours, I guess, you can watch Japan have their first game in the WBC. But, Joel, my question to you is, who do you have coming out on top? Of course, the U.S. won in 2017. I believe the DR won in 2013. And Japan won the first two WBC titles. The betting favorites in the 2023 WBC is the U.S., the Dominican Republic, and the Japan. No shock there. So who are you going to go with uh, to come out on top here in a couple of weeks? 
I, being an American myself, there's some bias, <laughs> and I'm going to go with the United States. Uh, the Dominicans are so good. That team is absolutely ridiculous. And it is unfortunate that the Dominican Republic and the United States are on the same side of the bracket. They will not play in the final. So that is going to be the semifinal matchup, and mm-hmm. that might be the best game of the entire event. But I think the U.S. will beat Japan in the uh, in the final. And the best part of that game will be Shohei Otani pitching in the championship against Mike Trout. That is going to be super cool. Uh, but it, it's such a cool event. It's so good for the sport of baseball uh, to showcase all of these guys playing for either their home country or their you know country of heritage. And in 2017, I think it, it took a, gave a lot of really solid positive momentum for the sport going into the 2017 season. I think it's going to do the same this year and get people that maybe are casual baseball fans that catch the U.S. Dominican game or a Puerto Rico Dominican game or Japan versus uh, Korea, and they get excited about it uh, and, you know, intrigue them more about the sport. Maybe it could lead to something like that. That's my hope. I'll tell you, the only negative about the WBC was the horn guy last night for Cuba because that made the game nearly unwatchable, which was the first game in the WBC. I muted that game in the first (laughs) inning. Everybody had to. No, nobody could listen to that, and I'm all for uh, crowd environments in baseball, but I was much more entertained by the Chinese-Taipei game that took place against Panama at around 5 or 6 a.m. it was this morning. But all the big dogs are going to be playing this weekend. They've had some exhibition games right now. The U.S. is playing against San Francisco in a spring training game. But the United States of America will play on Saturday, game one of the WBC for them against Great Britain. I'm sure everybody should tune in because – this really is one of the more exciting events you can have in all of baseball. Joel, thanks so much for your time as always, and go cheer on the Cowboys. Absolutely. Go, folks. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. There he goes. That's Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. He joins us every single Wednesday from 8 to 9 here on the Night Shift and wanted to get him off just in time because his Oklahoma State Cowboys are about to tip off here right across the street at the T-Mobile Center against the Oklahoma Sooners, the 10 seed in the Big 12 tournament. We are broadcasting live down here at the Power and Light District, of course, right across the street from T-Mobile. And right next door, if you've been hearing all the music, the loud music in there, the loud stereo, that is McFadden. So a great environment going on. It's only day one of the Big 12 tournament. It gets that much better tomorrow. We will preview all of that here coming up after the break, and we'll recap what happened in Game 1 of the Big 12 tournament between West Virginia and Texas Tech. You are listening to the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Welcome back into the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Kyle Collier back in the studio filling in for Dylan Michaels. We are broadcasting live down here at the Power and Light District in KC Mo. We are right across the street from where Game 2 of the Big 12 tournament is taking place. A round three matchup at the Bedlam Series between the Oklahoma State Cowboys and the Oklahoma Sooners. We are also right next door to McFadden's, which sounds to be having a, or sounds like it's uh, quite a party. And there was a lot of West Virginia fans. Um, Take Me Home Country Roads was just playing about 20 minutes ago. I didn't know how loud the music was coming through my mic, but Kyle informed me on the break that it's not that loud. So if I was talking it up too much, it's loud in my ear. Whenever I take my my headset off, I can clearly hear it right behind this door. But a lot of fun down here at the Power and Light District. It's going to be even better tomorrow 
with four games lined up with Baylor, Iowa State. You'll have Kansas and West Virginia. You'll have Texas and the winner of Oklahoma State and Oklahoma. And then the nightcap will be Kansas State against TCU. But let's recap what just happened. It concluded about 30 minutes ago or so. or so uh, Between West Virginia and Texas Tech, the Mountaineers come out with a 16-point victory over the Red Raiders, who without their head coach, Mark Adams, who was suspended uh, for some pretty tough news, I would say, for the entire program. I don't really know how else to put it here. Uh, there was a spitting scandal in there. There was some racial comments that at least Mark Adams refuted as coming from the Bible, saying there needed to be a master and a servant. You know, you can read that for what it is, but clearly it sounded like the players were not really on the side of Mark Adams anymore, so he wasn't there tonight, and you could tell in the second half that Texas Tech really ran out of gas. And it's a very young team. That's the thing with Texas Tech. You, you can't criticize them too much because at the end of the day, it was a team that was always going to have to step up in a unique type of way. They were going to need contributions from a lot of freshmen out there. They played a lot of freshmen tonight against West Virginia. They had their hot stretches this year, but when it was all said and done, they couldn't quite put it all together. They had a moment at the tail end of the regular season where you thought they were going to make a last-minute push for the NCAA tournament, but it was really their start to the year that derailed their entire season. Their start in Big 12 play was as brutal as I've seen in a long time, and maybe next to Iowa State in the COVID year when they won just two games all season long. But after beating South Carolina State on December 27th, Texas Tech did not win again until January 28th, and it wasn't even against the Big 12 team. It was against LSU down in Baton Rouge. But in that three-game winning streak they had from February 11th to February 21st, or excuse me, four-game winning streak, they beat K-State, they beat Texas at home, then won in Morgantown against West Virginia, and then beat the Oklahoma Sooners by 11. You felt like, all right, they're going to need to take at least two of their next three to close out the regular season to give themselves a puncher's chance going into Kansas City, but they lost all three to TCU in a heartbreaker, 83-82. Fell in another heartbreaker to Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse, 67-63, to then lost to Oklahoma State in Lubbock, 71-68. to But this West Virginia team, this was my takeaway from game one down here in Kansas City. This West Virginia team, if they can move up to about an eight or a nine seed, and Selection Sunday will be on Sunday, of course, and you can listen to our special show on Sports Radio 810 WHB beginning at 4.30 p.m. It'll be Josh Briscoe and I and Michael Darcy running things back up there in Overland Park. But this West Virginia team is on the cusp, I believe, of being an 8 or a 9 seed. I think Joe Lenardi had them as a 10. This team, if they get into the 8 or 9 territory, they are going to be a hellish, nightmarish matchup for whoever draws them as the number 1 seed. I mean, this West Virginia team, despite having 13 losses this year, they are incredible per Ken Palm. They are a very physical bunch. They can beat you in transition. They have great guard play with Kedrian Johnson. I like their size in the post. They're not like typical West Virginia teams. They're not like the ones that had, you know, two or three really good guards. They press you all game long with Press Virginia. They had a big rim protector. It's a different type of West Virginia team. But I think we've been waiting the last couple of years for Bob Huggins to kind of step back into that limelight with West Virginia because they had had a couple of down years ever since those two guards had graduated about five or six years ago. I'm blanking on them. Javon Carter was one of them. I apologize, but I'm blanking on the other guard they had at West Virginia. But when they were competing at the top half of the Big 12 about in the first three spots, and now since they've been near the bottom of the conference, 
They've sort of had to change their identity, and I think you saw that in a big way against Texas Tech tonight. You never really want to get too amped up, too excited about these Wednesday night games because typically in the past, they are the sleeper games. You know, they're with teams that you just know we're not going to make the NCAA tournament, and you more often than not do not have a team like West Virginia playing on the first night in the Big 12 tournament. You do not have an 8 or a 9 seed playing on a Wednesday night. Texas Tech makes a little bit of sense. Hell, they make a lot of bit of sense because they were not that great this year. They were very young. But this West Virginia team, they get Kansas tomorrow, and I know we talked about all week long how Kansas State got a brutally tough matchup, a brutally tough draw with TCU as the six because the Cats aren't even favored tomorrow despite having home court and despite Eddie Lampkin leaving the team for personal reasons. So TCU will be without their big man. But this West Virginia team might be one of the tougher matchups tomorrow in going up against Kansas. They just saw them at Allen Fieldhouse not too long ago. That came down to the wire. And West Virginia usually can give Kansas a run for their money. I know that the Jayhawks blew them out in Morgantown, but just go over the last couple of years. It didn't matter how good or bad West Virginia was. They always seem to give Kansas a run for their money, whether that be in Morgantown or that be at Allen Fieldhouse. You go back to when West Virginia first came into the Big 12, they were always knocking off Kansas and Morgantown. Now, tomorrow afternoon, Kansas is going to have the home crowd. They've already beaten them twice this year, and Kansas is easily going to be favored to make it three straight times this year. But I'm just saying watch out for this team. Not so much tomorrow. They could certainly knock off Kansas. But Kansas has shown down here in Kansas City in the Big 12 tournament they are typically playing for the Big 12 title game. And more often than not, coming out on the winning side of that. I'm looking more so to the NCAA tournament. Because this West Virginia team could find a way into the Sweet 16. They absolutely could. They get an 8 or a 9 seed, and they draw somebody like a UCLA, or they draw somebody like a Houston, both really good one seeds. I'll go more so Alabama. I'm not as high on Alabama as I am on the other two there. But let's say Alabama gets West Virginia. I'm just saying it wouldn't shock me. And I do think Alabama has a hell of a lot of talent. They're a damn good team, and they dominated in the SEC this year. But we have seen some inconsistencies. And I think the scarring image for everybody that watched Alabama this year was getting nearly 30 balled by Oklahoma and Norman, who, of course, is playing right now as the 10 seed in the Big 12 tournament. Now, West Virginia is much better than Oklahoma. And you have a second-round matchup. All I'm saying is I could see some bets being placed on West Virginia to maybe pull off an upset in the second round. Maybe they stick as a 10. That's still an incredibly tough matchup for a two seed in the NCAA tournament. Maybe a team like Purdue draws West Virginia. Who knows? But I am really, really high on Bob Huggins' squad this year. As for the game going on right now across the street at the T-Mobile Center, Oklahoma State and Oklahoma. By the way, I am one for one on my picks for the Big 12 tournament. If you didn't see it, you can go to my Twitter account, at JohnnyJ underscore 15, and see Sterling Holmes and my 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 picks for the Big 12 tournament. A little bit of a, a stumble there over my words. But you can see that video that was posted on Sports Radio 810 WHB. One for one in my picks so far in the Big 12 tournament. I took West Virginia over Texas Tech. Now I've got an upset, and much to the dismay that I don't think Joel Penfield will want to come on the show anymore. I did pick against his Oklahoma State Cowboys. I have Oklahoma winning tonight. Right now they are trailing the Pokes 8-7 to with 14-19 left 
in the first half of play. I think what worries me about Oklahoma State is they lost four or five to close out the regular season. They were at one point about to leapfrog Kansas in the Big 12 standings, which is just bonkers to think about because Kansas nearly won this conference outright by three games. But when Oklahoma State and Kansas met in Stillwater on Valentine's Day, all the Pokes had to do was win. They had to beat Kansas, and they would have jumped them in the standings and likely would have been the nail in the coffin on Kansas's chances of winning another Big 12 title outright. But since that game, it's been a bit of a free fall for the Oklahoma State Cowboys. They lost five in a row and fortunately were able to snag that finale, the regular season finale in Lubbock against Texas Tech, 71-68. to But after their 11-point loss to Kansas, they lost by 25 to TCU, lost by 18 to West Virginia and Morgantown, lost by 5 to Kansas State at home, and lost by 6 to Baylor at home. It was an absolute free fall. And in a lot of those games, they had a really good chance to come away a winner after a you know, great stretch in the second half. They had a couple of great stretches in the second half against Kansas State, against Baylor, and against Kansas. But then some of those games, when they didn't get that run, that second half run, it completely fell away from them. It slipped out of their fingers. You know, lose to TCU by 25, give up 100 points. It's an Oklahoma State team that was very good defensively. But that was why I made my prediction tonight, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, make a prediction, you're never always going to be right. But this Oklahoma State team had lost five in a row at one point. So they had actually lost five of six, excuse me. I was wrong on the four or five. I mean, technically they had, but you want to go one step further. They lost five of six to close out regular season play. They're not playing good basketball right now. And I do like a lot of the talent that they have. You know, Bryce Thompson, the former Jayhawk. I love a guy like Caleb Boone who had a great performance against Kansas. Uh, It was actually the day after Valentine's Day. We had 27 points on 15 shots, 9 boards. They've got great post presence. They've got a great defending team. But I think it's an Oklahoma State team that hasn't been playing that inspiring of basketball over the last two weeks or two to three weeks. Now they get an Oklahoma team that, man, I really don't know what you could make of Oklahoma. They're not good. Let's get that out of the way. They're not a good basketball team. They're 15 and 16. They will absolutely need to win the Big 12 tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. They've been wildly inconsistent. Their big wins this year include beating Alabama, of course, at home by 24. They also beat Kansas State by 14. They beat Iowa State and Hilton by 11. And they beat TCU by 14. None of that makes sense whatsoever. Because they also lost to West Virginia by 32 in Morgantown. They lost to Oklahoma State by 16 in Stillwater. They lost early on in the season to Arkansas by 10. They lost to Nova by 4. They lost to Sam Houston State in their regular season opener, 52-51. to They make no sense. But sometimes with those teams, it makes them inherently dangerous because you don't know what version of Oklahoma you're going to get. You're either going to get the really bad version of Oklahoma or a team that can't miss. And they still have a talented starting five, I would say. You have the Groves brothers. You have Jalen Hill. And, of course, you have your star in Grant Sherfield. You have guys on this team that can simply put the ball in the goal. You've got good size in the post. You've got a good stretch four in Tanner Groves. But it just not has come, it hasn't come together for Porter, Porter Moser in year two at Oklahoma. Right now trailing the Oklahoma State Cowboys 16-7 to with 11.32 left to go in the first half. 
I do like Oklahoma at points. I hate to admit it, but it's an Oklahoma team that knows they have nothing to lose. They should be playing completely free and easy in this tournament, even if they make it past Oklahoma State, which right now it's not looking that promising. But they know they got to win the Big 12 tournament. they got to come out a winner here in Kansas City to get a shot in March Madness. And sometimes you will see teams play more inspired than they have all season long when they know their back's against the wall like this. Nobody expects Oklahoma to move on. I guess nobody but me. They're not very high on the Sooners. And I'm not just saying this because Todd Lebo's a big Sooners fan. We have seen times this year that Oklahoma has been a good basketball team. But overall, they're not consistent enough. Do you believe that's scary? Or do you believe that doesn't mean much for a team that is 15 and 16? When you're not consistent, you're not a good basketball team. Or if you're not consistent, you don't know if you're going to get the really good version of Oklahoma or the really bad version. So far through the first 10 minutes in Kansas City, you're getting the bad version of Oklahoma. They're down 16-7 to to the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Now, before we take our final break of the first hour here on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB, and we are broadcasting live at the Power and Light District in KC Mill. We are right next door to McFadden's and also right across the street from the T-Mobile Center where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are playing right now. And the best day of the Big 12 tournament is tomorrow all-day action down here in Kansas City. Hoping for a little bit better weather. Not sure if we'll get it, but nonetheless, you're going to have pep rallies all day long, great music. The bars are going to be open. If you want to come down here and drink before Iowa State and Baylor, I know the Cyclones fans are going to show up because they always do in Kansas City. But looking at these games, the ones I like the most, I'm going to start it off here, and I promise I'm not just being generic here. I'm not picking them by default. I really, really like this Iowa State-Baylor matchup, and I love this K-State-TCU matchup. I'm not just picking those because of the those are the four teams that are close in competitiveness because Kansas gets West Virginia, and Texas will get the winner of this game between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. But you look at Baylor and you look at Iowa State. They just met last Saturday, and Iowa State – despite being the coldest team in the Big 12, go into Waco and win by 15. I don't think anybody would have predicted that. I certainly didn't. And if you did, uh, maybe you should take more money to Hollywood Casino where we're usually at every single Wednesday night. But this Iowa State team had lost Caleb Grill. He was asked to leave the program. They've been on a long, long losing streak. They were no longer a great defending team. They were already not a great scoring team, but they had been beaten up, man. I mean, going back to their win over Kansas State where you felt like things were really turning around for them when they were near the top of the Big 12, they lost to Missouri by 17, lost to Tech and Lubbock by 3, and that was a game in which they had, I want to say, a 20-plus point lead. It was something like that. It was 17 to 20 points, if not more. It might have been something like 23. But they lose to Texas Tech. They do beat Kansas by 15. But after that win against Kansas on February 4th, they only won two more times. They beat TCU, who was still really banged up without Mike Miles. They had lost to West Virginia. They had lost to Oklahoma State at home. They had lost to Kansas State in Manhattan, lost to Texas in Austin, lost to the Sooners at home, and that really was the telltale sign that I thought Iowa State was dead in the water. So you lose to the Sooners by 11, then you lose to West Virginia at home, 72 to 69 and then somehow after having back-to-back awful performances at home you beat Baylor by 15 in Waco it makes no sense and maybe that's just the big 12 I can't really put my finger on it but this Baylor team is also a team that 
I can't really put my finger on it. Can't get a pulse on Iowa State. Can't get a pulse on Baylor. I think what makes Baylor go, and this isn't a genius thing to say, but Keontae George will take this team as far as Baylor really wants to go. And right now he's banged up, and he wasn't that healthy against Iowa State. You know, Adam Flagler is a great guard for this Baylor team, but he pairs a lot nicer with Keontae George when he's above, let's say, 80%, which he didn't look that healthy in the game against Iowa State. You know, L.J. Cryer and Adam Flagler, they'll look to a guy like Keontae George. He had seven points in the game. He was three of ten, one of seven from deep, had two turnovers. Baylor needs a guy, and I mean absolutely needs a guy like Keontae George, like everybody in the world needs oxygen. That's how vital he is to this team. And we saw when he doesn't play that well, Baylor's not going to be very good. Go to the second half against Kansas at Allen Fieldhouse. Keontae George was lights out in the first half. Couldn't miss. I mean, he's firing up 28-footers, getting fouled, four-point plays, dead quiet in the second half. What happened? KU erased a 17-point deficit. And that's with Adam Flagler on Saturday playing well, LJ Cryer playing well. They didn't shoot the ball at a great clip, but Adam Flagler gave you 20, LJ Cryer gave you 13. That's an okay performance, and they get blown out. They get absolutely blown out by Iowa State and Waco, and it was an Iowa State team that was completely dead in the water. I mean, it just wasn't close. And then you look at this game between Kansas State and TCU. I can't quite put my finger on either. I've used that now three times in this segment when looking at the Big 12 games tomorrow. And I think it's very evident that when looking at this TCU team, they're kind of in the same ballpark of Baylor. Mike Miles is their Keontae George, and I know that I'm saying the best player has to step up, but sometimes we've seen in the Big 12 the better teams looking at KU, looking at Texas, looking at Kansas State, the top three teams in the Big 12. There's been nights when the star hasn't played well. Jalen Wilson, Big 12 unanimous player of the year. He had a game where he had two points against Texas at home, and KU won by eight. Jalen Wilson was a complete non-factor, and Kansas found a way to win that game. We have seen Kansas State win games when Marquise Noel is not very good or when Keontae Johnson is not very good. We have seen Texas win games this year when a guy like Tyrese Hunter or Marcus Carr is not playing their best basketball. You find a way to win. TCU and Baylor, and Iowa State for that matter, are kind of in the same category. When their best player doesn't show up, there's virtually no chance they win. And we keep saying this TCU team has the talent. If they could just get healthy, they're a top three team in the Big 12. And maybe that's what Vegas is thinking with TCU. Right? That they are thinking this TCU team with a healthy Mike Miles can go the distance. Not only in Kansas City, but maybe find a way to make a Final Four run. If they were healthy all year long, maybe we're having a different discussion here on March 8th. Maybe we're talking about TCU being the one seed playing on Thursday and not Kansas. We will never know because this team wasn't healthy. But tomorrow night they're going to be without their big man, Eddie Lampkin, who is just a hulking figure of 6'10", 6'11", 270, 75 pounds. He's not playing. And yet K-State is still an underdog in this game. And it baffles me because Kansas State's going to have the home court by far and away. I think it'll go Kansas having the best home court. Iowa State probably number two, then I'll go Kansas State. Because Iowa State fans always travel very nicely 
down here to Kansas City. It's a big-time thing down here in Kansas City when you got Iowa State fans showing up, which is every single year. But looking at this TCU team, I want to have faith in them. I really do. I want to see this team go far because they are an incredibly fun bunch to watch. They're as good as hammering somebody 100-75. to They're as good as beating Kansas by 23 at Allen Fieldhouse. They're also as bad as getting curb stomped by Oklahoma and Norman. You just can't figure out this TCU team. And it's surprising to me because Vegas usually doesn't go with those teams that kind of are a toss-up, 50-50. What version of TCU are you going to get? Kansas State's pretty consistent. And I think it's pretty damn simple for this Kansas State team tomorrow night that will be tipping off at 8.30, the nightcap, down here at the Big 12 tournament at the T-Mobile Center. You want to talk about taking care of the basketball. Kansas State typically is not that great at it. They turn it over a lot. Keontae Johnson will turn it over a bit. Cam Carter will turn it over a bit. But nobody turns it over more on this team than Marquise Noel. Go look at some of the numbers and the losses this year for Kansas State. When Marquise Noel turns it over four more times, the Wildcats are usually losing. He's had games where he's turned it over seven times. Against West Virginia, he turned it over six times. You can't overcome that. And if he's going up against Mike Miles tomorrow night, which I'm assuming he will in a handful of possessions, it's all about taking care of the basketball. Keontae Johnson can have his turnovers. Cam Carter can have his turnovers. Now, David Gasson can have a couple turnovers. Naquan Tomlin. Now, you don't want to pile up and have 20 or 25. But it sort of rolls into a bigger disaster. Think about a ball that starts at the top of the hill just gets bigger as it goes down the hill. And it starts up top with how well Marquise Noel is taking care of the basketball. When he's taking care of it, and he has less than three turnovers, K-State's going to win that game 90 to 95% of the time. When he's teetering on the brink of five to six, you're going to get the bad version of Kansas State. That, to me, is the dictator tomorrow. More so on what version of TCU we're going to get. You know, I think we will get a better version of TCU than the one we saw in Manhattan, because the one we saw in Manhattan was without Mike Miles, and Eddie Lampkin barely played. One of Eddie Lampkin, but you're going to have your star in Mike Miles. So I think TCU will be far more equipped to beat Kansas State than they were in Manhattan, but the difference to me is going to be how well Marquise Noel can take care of the basketball. He can give you 20 or 25 points. We've seen him at his best. We've seen him score even over 30. When he gets to the free throw line, he's automatic. He's dishing it out to everybody. He's getting 8 to 9 to 10 assists. He's also a great defender, one of the best defenders in the Big 12. He can get his hand in the passing lane, get two or three steals. But to me, the difference here is what his turnover total will be. He has less than three K-State wins. Hell, he even has three, maybe four. Think K-State wins in a nail-biter. He has five or six or even seven. I'm going to go with the Frogs in this game. So two fantastic matchups, and they are a long, long ways off from each other. You have the 11.30 tip-off between Iowa State and Baylor. Then you have the, the 8.30 tip between Kansas State and TCU. Sandwiched in between those games will be Kansas and West Virginia at 2. And then right after that game, it'll be Texas going up against the winner of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Right now in that game, the Oklahoma State Cowboys are up 22-13 to with 6.37 left to go in the first half of play. Kyle, before we hit break here and come back and talk a little bit more college basketball because it is championship week, what is your game to watch? tomorrow is it going to be the kansas west virginia texas oklahoma or oklahoma state or is it the two games i just mentioned uh, you know what jack i'm 
very interested in what West Virginia is going to bring to Kansas this third time around, their third matchup of the year. Uh, like you mentioned, they got blown out in their house by Kansas, and then they come to Allen Fieldhouse and they play Kansas right down to the wire. Now, this third time around, is Bob Huggins, you know, he's always, you know, kind of had this, this humorous joke towards Kansas. He gets a bonus for beating Kansas, right? Is Bob Huggins going to take down Kansas in their first in their first tournament game, Kansas's, I mean, th- that's really what I'm interested in. Yeah, I think it is a fantastic thing to watch uh, when looking at this Kansas-West Virginia game because Kansas can come out flat. It's somewhat of an early tip-off. It's not as early as 11 a.m., of course, but 2 p.m., you come out flat, West Virginia can run you out of the building. You know, you have a guy like Eric Stevenson who can get red hot. He scored 23-plus points in the last five games, reaching some elite territory for West Virginia. Uh, just a great, great matchup all around, even with the one and the two seeds. When you have Kansas and West Virginia and Texas and Oklahoma or Oklahoma State, you cannot have a bad game tomorrow. All four of them taking place down here at the Power and Light District, right across the street at the T-Mobile Center. It'll be tipping off at 1130 between Iowa State and Baylor. We will take our final break. I know we went a little bit long here. I guess we'll take our final break of the first hour and come back. We'll talk some more college basketball as we are just a couple days away from Selection Sunday. That's next on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. Back here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810, WHB, I'm your host, Jack Johnson. Kyle Collier, back in the studio because we are broadcasting live down here at the Power and Light District, right next door to McFadden's and across the street from the T-Mobile Center where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are in a tight one now with about four minutes to go in the first half. The Pokes up 22-17. to The Sooners surprisingly came in as a one-and-a-half point favor. The over-under was at one thirty-five. And a half Oklahoma, the 10 seed, Oklahoma State, the 7. The winner will go on to play Texas tomorrow evening. West Virginia won game one of the Big 12 tournament, 78-62 over Texas Tech. They will move on to take on the number one seeded Kansas Jayhawks tomorrow afternoon. That will tip off at 2 p.m. We'll have Jordan Foote joining us here in about 15 minutes. We will talk some draft, NFL draft that is, and where the Chiefs may go with it. Also talk some Orlando Brown Jr. and Frank Clark as the Chiefs have been fairly busy on making some moves over the last week or so. But let's continue our talk of college basketball because it is championship week and we want to make sure we get all of the necessary information in of the three local teams here in Kansas, Kansas State, and Missouri, which we will dump to now with the SEC tournament. Missouri has a double bye which is incredibly important for them because they are a team that, per Joe Lunardi, he still has them as an 8 or a 9 seed. It shocked me a bit because I think this Missouri team is more deserving of a 6 seed getting that double bye in the SEC tournament and the fact that they would have to probably win one more game to lock themselves in as a 6 or a 7 seed. I think it's kind of unfortunate for this Missouri team because this Missouri team has shown how dangerous they can be. They never were the best defensive team, but they got a lot of guys that can score the ball. Demoy Hodge, one of them. Kobe Brown, another one of them. Uh, you have, you know, just a great collection of guards with this Missouri team, which still could make a pretty deep run in the SEC tournament. I'm not wildly impressed with the top half of the SEC. 
mean, you have Alabama number one, and we've already voiced our concerns on the Crimson Tide going into the NCAA tournament. A&M has been a sleeper, but even A&M and Kentucky, I kind of think they're interchangeable at this point. Kentucky's gotten hot of late, but also lost to Vanderbilt at Rupp Arena in the home finale. And Missouri's right there at number four. They had a better overall record than Tennessee, who at one point was ranked in the top five. I just don't know if Missouri has gotten the credit they deserve for putting in a a year one type of season with this under Dennis Gates because they can score the basketball at a very high rate. They've been able to come back from some pretty large deficits on the road. The last one they pulled off, I believe, was on the road against LSU, who, yes, did finish dead last in the SEC, but it still was a large deficit to overcome in the second half of play. But like we mentioned, Kobe Brown and Demoy Hodge, two of the guys at the top that do the majority of the scoring. But what I like about this Missouri team is how well-balanced they are. They've gotten more contributions from a guy like Isaiah Mosley, the transfer from Missouri State. DeAndre Golston has also been very good for them, averaging about 10.5 points, shooting over 43% from the floor. You get a guy like Noah Carter giving you close to 10 points per game. Nick Honor had the big game winner against Mississippi State in Columbia a couple weeks back. He's another guy giving you near 9 points a game. Sean East giving you more than 7 points per game. That is a very balanced group, which makes them another potential 8 or 9 seed nightmarish matchup for a 1 seed. We just gave our praise to West Virginia. I think you could put Missouri in the same category if they were to lose in their first game in the SEC tournament. Of course, them getting the double bye, they get some extra rest, but it also puts more pressure on them to perform well having that amount of rest and not really getting that gimme or that easy game early on and getting maybe one game under your belt. But this SEC tournament, it's pretty wide open. Like, I'm not going to lock in Alabama here. I know Adam Dravetta in his projection video that he did on 810 earlier this morning, he had Kentucky winning the SEC tournament. I could see that happening. I could see A&M doing it. I could see Missouri. I could see Tennessee. Maybe Auburn gets hot. They've won 20 games. They just weren't that great in SEC play. Maybe Arkansas, who had one of the top recruiting classes in the country. They're 19-12 and 12 overall. Those two actually battled out tomorrow night, speaking of Auburn and Arkansas. And I wouldn't say those two teams are on the bubble. They're both pretty safely in the NCAA tournament. And they're another group of teams that could be very dangerous for a one or a two seed, maybe in the second round. But as for the SEC, it's different in years past, and I think the majority of that is because Kentucky's had a bit of a down year at 21-10 and 10, entering the conference tournaments. Alabama, I think, was on everybody's radar from about 12 to 13 games in. But since that point, and maybe it was the scarring loss they had to Oklahoma, they were dominating in SEC play. They were undefeated. Then in the Big 12 SEC Challenge, they get the worst team in the Big 12. And maybe it was more so had the Big 12 was just by far and away the best conference in, the, in college basketball. Or was that Alabama was a little bit overrated? Right now, per Joe Lunardi, he has Alabama as the one seed in the South region. The 8-9 matchup, how about this? Illinois or West Virginia? Like we just said, West Virginia gets an Alabama in the second round. I maybe would take my chances with West Virginia. I'm not much of the betting man. I've definitely thrown down some bets in March Madness. Some of them have paid off. That would be an upset I'd kind of be for. Because Alabama, I don't think, is as lethal, as dominant as we've seen from some of these other one seats. You know, Kansas has the most quad one wins in college basketball. UCLA has been one of the hottest teams out west in college basketball. Houston is the number one team in the country right now. And even though they play the American, Ken Palm really likes them. 
So you have some advanced data that favors a lot of those one seeds, and they do favor Alabama as well. But to me, the eye test, it's not as exciting to me as it once was maybe back in December. I know you've got your stud freshman and Brandon Miller who's had some off-court troubles. You do have a very talented starting five. You have a very big starting five. But they've been on the ropes a couple of times to close out the regular season. That's what concerns me the most about the Crimson Tide. They lose to A&M in the regular season finale on the road in College Station. They had to come back from a massive deficit at home against Auburn. They had to hold off Arkansas at home, 86-83. to They narrowly escaped South Carolina at the buzzer on the road. And this South Carolina team finished near the bottom of the standings as well. But their last four games... They weren't that impressive, and this is the last thing you want to have heading into the conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament is sluggish play, inconsistent play. Alabama's had that. Despite having a 26-5 and overall record, being undefeated at home and 16-2 and in conference play, I don't really trust them. Can't really say I trust A&M either at 15-3 and in conference play. And Kentucky, they can be as good as the best team in the conference, They can also be as bad as losing to a team like Vanderbilt at home or losing to a team like South Carolina at Rupp Arena. And the Gamecocks finished 11-20 overall. Just don't know what to make of the SEC. But I will tell you, and this is even me being a Kansas guy, it kind of amazes me that Missouri hasn't gotten the amount of attention that I guess locally a lot of people are giving them now. At 23-8 overall, I know they had their hiccups. You know, he lost to Mississippi State and Starkville. That's still not a bad loss to me. He lose to Auburn by 34, 33, excuse me, on the road. You lose to A&M at home by 9. You had the slip-up against Florida in Gainesville. You lost to A&M in College Station by 18. You lost to Arkansas in Fayetteville. Wouldn't say those were all slip-ups. But then it's almost not crediting the win against Tennessee in Knoxville. The win against Iowa State by 17 at home. You had another 12-point win against Ole Miss. And I know these aren't, quote-unquote, quad one wins. But at the end of the day, they are taking care of business against the bottom of the SEC, which we saw from the top half they couldn't always do. Kentucky lost to South Carolina at home. You know, Missouri found a way to take care of Ole Miss. They took care of Vanderbilt at home. They took care of Kentucky at home. They had a big win before Christmas against Illinois. They had a buzzer-beating win against UCF. They beat LSU by 10. They handled them at home. They beat South Carolina by 9 at home. They beat Georgia by 22 on the road. They beat LSU by 5, and they wrapped it up by beating Ole Miss by 5. Just took care of business. That's what this Missouri team has done, and maybe that's why they haven't been the sexy or the popular pick, because they're not dominating across the board. They had a big upset against Tennessee. I liked their win against Iowa State. I liked their win against Illinois. I liked their win against Kentucky. And, hell, I even liked their win against Arkansas when they had to come back from a pretty big deficit as well. But this Missouri team can be another dangerous 8-9 team. And do not write them off as a team that could maybe win the SEC tournament. It's pretty wide open. I know we want to say the Big 12 is wide open, but we can probably narrow it down to about three or four teams. The SEC, hell, I know there's a lot of teams. Pretty much anybody can go out there and win in this conference tournament. Kyle, what's your pulse on this Missouri team? They finished fourth overall in the standings. They had a better overall record than Tennessee. They were right behind Kentucky. They were just one game back of the Wildcats. They were just a couple games back of A&M. 
And I, I do think if they got another chance at facing a team like Alabama, they could absolutely give them a run for their money with the way the Crimson Tide have played over the last four games or so. Now, talking with Sterling Holmes a little bit this week, he's very confident in the Missouri Tigers. I know he is a Missouri grad, but uh, his confidence was telling. And I'll tell you this, I had I did not realize Missouri was above Tennessee uh, in the rankings mm-hmm. for the SEC tournament. Um, I'd be very interested interested to see. Now, I'm not looking ahead, but if Tennessee uh, moves on and they, they defeat Ole Miss, Tennessee versus Missouri, I that's a very intriguing matchup to me. I'd like to see if uh, Missouri can uh, handle their business against Tennessee again. Yeah, Missouri's got the double bye right now. They get a little bit of extra rest, but I'm going to go with Sterling here. And Sterling is a Mizzou guy. I'm a KU guy, but I can't deny what I've seen from Missouri over the last couple of weeks. They've been an impressive team, and they've pulled off some pretty big comebacks. They've also had some pretty impressive quad one wins, and even coming on the road against a team like Tennessee in Knoxville. Right now in the SEC tournament from earlier today, Ole Miss beats South Carolina 67-61, and ending the Gamecock season, and at halftime between LSU and Georgia, two football schools, the Tigers, who finished with just two wins in conference play, they are up by 12 on the Bulldogs, 42-30. to Now going back to the Big 12, what's going on between Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, the Pokes lead the Sooners by six at halftime, so a low-scoring game, which would favor Oklahoma State, who is more defensively minded than the offensive-powered Oklahoma Sooners. Before we hit break and go to Jordan Foote and talk some NFL draft. One last team I want to touch on. They're not in the Big 12. They're not in the SEC. But I want to ask you a point-blank question, Kyle, and it involves the North Carolina Tar Heels. They were in the national championship game last year as a nine seed. They lost to Kansas, blew a 15-point lead at halftime. And right now, Joe Lunardi has them as the first four team out, or one of the four teams out in the NCAA tournament. They would become the first preseason number one to miss the NCAA tournament. It's been an unbelievable disaster for the Tar Heels. I would say Hubert Davis is on the hot seat, but that kind of ties into my question here. If North Carolina does not make the NCAA tournament, Kyle, what would you do as athletic director and maybe the controlling figure for this basketball program? Their fall from grace has been very – it's been wild to watch this year. Uh, I wouldn't do anything rash. You are def- Mr. Davis, you are definitely on the hot seat. I'm not making any any sudden decisions yet. It, it's been a rough, rough year, and North Carolina stock has fallen a ton. But I, I'm not ready to make that move one year removed after being the runner-up for the national championship. And I know that you want to fall in love with the tournament run, and I think North Carolina more than it overachieved last year's expectations. Right, right. But the weird thing with this North Carolina team, they returned darn near everybody. And they picked up one of the top big men transfers through the portal out of Northwestern, Pete Nance. So this North Carolina team, by the way, they do not get an easy matchup in their first game in the ACC tournament. Tomorrow night at 6 p.m. on ESPN, they will get Virginia. And if Joe Lunardi has North Carolina as one of the first four teams out, they have to win to get over that hump. So if they do not win against Virginia, they're not making the NCAA tournament. And this Carolina team, I mean, you're going to look back at the 2022-2023 North Carolina team and just scratch your head. I mean, they managed to bring back a guy like Caleb Love. They brought back Baycott. When you get a guy like 
Baycott coming back, they can give you a double-double nightly, and he's averaging a double-double, that should be good enough to at least get you to 20-plus wins. Then you bring back another starter from your championship team, R.J. Davis. So three of your top scorers all come back. Then you add Pete Nance through the portal, who came from Northwestern. He's averaging double figures. And you have Leaky Black as well. And Puff Johnson, who came off the bench. That is a group right now of six guys that should be enough to carry you to about 20 wins at least. 20 to 21, 22. And that was if, if everything went wrong. And the ironic thing is here that everything did go wrong for Carolina. But it wasn't injuries. Maybe it was just coaching. You can't say the ACC was that dominant. Duke wasn't that good this year. Miami was atop the conference. Virginia was kind of having a an in-between type of year. They're still good. They're top 15. We've seen Virginia be as high as top five before. So the ACC wasn't this gauntlet like the Big 12. It just baffles me about North Carolina, and North Carolina is a blue blood. They hold themselves to a high standard. I'm not going to go as far to say they would fire Hubert Davis, but whereas he was on the verge of maybe even getting a contract extension after last year, Mm -hmm. taking a nine seed to the national title game and leading the number one seed Kansas Jokes by 15, it crashes and burns there and then crashes and burns even worse in this regular season, 2022 and 2023. They got to win tomorrow night. They got to win over Virginia, or I think their season is over. Right now, Joe Lunardi has the Tar Heels as one of the first four teams out alongside Oklahoma State, Wisconsin, and Arizona State. As for the next four out, he has Michigan, Charleston, Clemson, and Oregon. As for the last four in, Lunardi has Mississippi State, Utah State, Rutgers, and Nevada. And the last four buys would be Boise State, NC State, Pitt, who takes on Duke tomorrow as well, and Penn State out of the Big Ten. That wraps up all of our college basketball talk. We are down here live at the Power and Light District, right across the street from the Big 12 tournament inside the T-Mobile Center, right next door as well to McFadden's. It's actually a pretty crisp night, but they got the heaters outside. they got some great music playing in McFadden's. they got the game on the TV. If you don't want to go inside, you can come watch the second half of Oklahoma State and Oklahoma out in the courtyard area. You never can go wrong with grabbing a beer or two at the Power and Light District. We will also be back out here on Saturday morning after the semifinals matchup. We'll lead you up to at least the afternoon, which will be all talk of this Big 12 championship matchup. Maybe the toughest Big 12 tournament we have seen in the last two decades. I think it goes far to say that because of how well-balanced it is top to bottom. The four matchups tomorrow will be Iowa State and Baylor, Kansas, West Virginia. Texas will play the winner of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, which is at half right now in favor of Oklahoma State. 26-20 to 20 in the nightcap will be Kansas State and TCU. Some more breaking news in college basketball before we move on to some NFL draft talk with Jordan Foote. John Rostein on Twitter just reported that Texas Tech's Mark Adams has resigned per a release. So Mark Adams has coached his final game as head coach of the Texas Tech Red Raiders. They will be in the hunt for another head coach. It'll be their third in the last four years, maybe the fourth, if you want to count Corey Williams coaching his first game as interim tonight and a 78-62 loss to the West Virginia Mountaineers. All right, let's take our first break of the second and final hour of the night shift. When we come back, we'll have some NFL draft talk with Jordan Foote. That's next on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB.
We are back here on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, broadcasting live from the Power and Light District right next door to the T-Mobile Center where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are taking place in Game 2 of the Big 12 Tournament. But let's go back to the phone lines and talk some NFL draft with Jordan Foote, Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report. Jordan, how are we doing tonight? Jack, I am good, buddy. I hope you were... Uh, managing to stay warm down there and having a good time, man. Yes, because I remember you were down here last year freezing your ass off just like I was. So thankfully, I'm in this very cozy and warm studio. But it's the perfect time, I think, after about an hour of college basketball talk, to take a little bit of a pivot and talk NFL draft because in this most recent mock draft, I can't even believe my eyes, done by CBS Sports' uh, Chris Trapasso, he has the Kansas City Chiefs taking a running back, I believe. Or actually, he had Jordan Addison. And the other CBS Sports mock draft, he has Jameer Gibbs going to the Kansas City Chiefs with the 31st pick. I can't quite wrap my head around another first-round running back going to Kansas City, especially when you found Isaiah Pacheco in the seventh round. Jordan, I want you to talk me off the ledge here. There is virtually 0% chance that a running back is taken the first round by Kansas City, no? Buddy, I I am a very, very big uh, proponent of there's always a non-zero chance, but there is a zero chance. There is no way and you know where that they go with the running back again at 31. And, like, yeah, I'm also a big proponent of teams not necessarily drafting for need at the end of the first round, but the Chiefs have kind of backed themselves into a corner before free agency, even if they did – Find a left tackle, trade for a left tackle, find a defensive end, trade for a defensive end, maybe add to the wide receiver room. I'd still say that the odds are very, very low if they did all those things. Um, they just cannot afford a luxury pick like a running back. It's really not even a luxury pick because they already have Isaiah Pacheco, who's at worst probably a good member of a tandem. They can get a good member of a tandem via trade, free agency, or day three of the NFL draft, there's this thing called waiting until the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and UDFA sections to get a running back. So I'm with you. I'd say that chance is like zero right now, then maybe like 1% if they make some other moves. And I don't want to badmouth Trapasso in saying that the Chiefs take a running back. It was actually Kyle Stackpole of CBS Sports that about 12 hours ago put out the mock draft with the Chiefs taking Gibbs with the 31st pick. Now pivoting to a different position with – maybe letting a guy like Orlando Brown Jr. walk, not giving him the long-term extension. Jordan, what are the chances the Chiefs would maybe package up a couple of picks, move up in the first round, and find their future left tackle in the draft and not give OBJ the big money? I think it's possible. Um, I would say the odds of them actually paying OBJ at this point are really, really, really low. Like, they obviously want a long-term left tackle. I think he can get more from another team than he can get from the Chiefs, not just in terms of what they can offer, but what they will offer. Um, When you look at the blind resume, man, he's a four-time pro bowler. He's a guy that has handled adequately the transition to left tackle. He's a Super Bowl champion. Like, yeah, he really wasn't that great this past season, but some team out there, cough, cough, maybe the Chicago Bears, maybe a team like the Patriots, you know, some team that really needs a tackle, and isn't afraid to go after one, they're going to offer him better than the Chiefs are going to give him. They're going to give him the $23 million a year, 
They're going to give him the 50, 60, 70 million guaranteed. They're going to give him that contract. So in terms of him coming back, just don't think it's likely. Um, on the flip side, like you said, what do the Chiefs do in the draft if they need a tackle? I think the play, barring a massive trade-up, and there's a certain drop-off that I think they should be comfortable with, um, you sign a veteran, a Donovan Smith or a, a Taylor Luan, which people have been bringing up today. Um, you trade for someone, perhaps a veteran, and then you draft a Anton Harrison with a small trade-up, or maybe he falls to 31. You draft a Jalen Duncan in the second round, and you move up for him and hope he's your left tackle of the future. Maybe move DeJuan Jones over to the other side. He's a really, really big Orlando Brown Jr. type guy. Maybe you think Darnell Wright can eventually move over like Eric Fisher did, where they play him for a year and then switch him. But I think really the big three, and for the Chiefs' purposes, because Swarovski's arms are really small and short, probably the big two of Paris Johnson Jr. from Ohio State and Broderick Jones, big Brad Jones from Georgia, they'd have to execute a pretty significant trade-up, I think. It has to be this year's one, next year's one, and probably additional compensation after that, maybe a third-round pick to move halfway up the round. Um, I don't think they do that. I think they're going to want a veteran stopgap option they're going to want to draft their long-term guy, but I don't think they want to give up enough to move up for that guy. So whether it's Harrison, whether it's Duncan, maybe they take Blake Freeland in round two or round three. Um, the Chiefs need to pair that rookie with a veteran who I think can uh, take some of those reps if need be in year one. What's the deal with Lucas Niang? I know that he was banged up all of last year. He was recovering from an injury that he suffered back in 2021 against the Cincinnati Bengals. But is there any hope still that Niang can be a starting piece of this offensive line? Man, potentially at right tackle. I think the left tackle stuff is pretty much completely off the board. Like I would be absolutely forward barring a string of injuries if Lucas Niang even played one snap at left tackle for the Chiefs. Like, I just don't think that's um, in his present, in his future, in his long-term outlook. I do think he can play right tackle at some point, and he wasn't necessarily bad when he did play. I don't think you can count on him to be in good shape or healthy or consistently reliable um, through that stretch. But if he is in good shape, which it looks like he's healthy, if he is healthy – if he's locked in, if he's ready to go and Andrew Wiley doesn't come back, I think he can start at right tackle. Now, will he? Who knows? I think that possibility is there. The Chiefs, though, if you're betting on a random free agent veteran left tackle and then Lucas Niang to replace Brown and Wiley, like Brown and Wiley weren't great last year, don't get me wrong, that's iffy. So, yes and no, he can do it. Um, no, I don't think he's going to do it, but the athletic profile is still there. The traits are still there. The team control is still there. And I think the Chiefs are still at least a little bit intrigued about what he could possibly be. We're talking with Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report. I know the Chiefs wanted to say, or at least it was reported by Albert Breer a couple days back, that they believe Kadarius Tony can be a number one wide receiver in 2023. Can he be healthy enough to earn that title in Kansas City? We saw great stuff from Tony when he was healthy on the field, 
But, Jordan, I feel like to get that title of the number one receiver in the number one scoring offense in the NFL, you got to be more durable than Tony had shown even last year. No, 150%. And even Juju Smith-Schuster, like, there were a couple questions. Like, clearly he was the best receiver on the team, but can he be the number one on that team for a prolonged stretch? Like, in a small sample size, yes, they won the Super Bowl with Juju being the guy. But over the next three years, are you betting on that? I don't know if I would. Juju, the knee is a concern. Tony can't stay healthy. Sky Moore, small-ish guy. You don't know about the durability long-term. You don't know about the production long-term. MBS is MBS. Like, the Chiefs have a path to running it back with the receivers they have and having it blow up in their face. They might not get Tony to be healthy enough. They might not have Juju stay healthy if he comes back. Sky Moore might not make that leap. Then you're relying on MVS to step up, and he's just not capable of doing that in a wide receiver one capacity. So to get back to your question, I think Tony, with an offseason with the Chiefs training staff, um, the, the training staff that, oddly enough, got graded really lowly in the player report cards, um, I think he can get healthier. He can work on strengthening his soft tissue muscles, he can get as close to uh, consistently available as possible. It's not like an Adalberto Mondesi situation quite yet, but it can quickly turn into that. If this coming season he has more ankle injuries, he has more hamstring injuries, he has a a bicep thing, like whatever, it's going to be an abdominal issue. Um, It's going to be tough. And the capability is there for him to be McCole Hardman in terms of all the gadget stuff, but also be a better lateral athlete, also be better down the field, also get more consistent separation, also run better routes. If you put all that together, that's what the Chiefs wanted McCole Hardman to be. It's the 1,000-yard receiver. It's the wide receiver one. It's the perfect complement to a bigger-bodied kind of guy that can find soft spots and zones. Tony can be that if he's healthy And if he's in a rhythm, the problem, like you said, is he ever going to do that? It's hard to bet on him doing it. If the Chiefs decide not to trade up with that 31st pick, not get an extra pick in the first round that they did last year and taking Trent McDuffie, then, of course, George Karloftis, can they find a starter with that 31st pick? And you can take any position here. It can be edge. It can be wide receiver. It could be tight end. Of course, he wouldn't start over Travis Kelsey. But offensive line cornerback safety you can pick any player you want jordan can you actually find a starter though with that 31st pick yeah i think you can and it's tough because you look at the most important positions um wide receiver defensive end or slash edge whatever you want to call it and then offensive tackle those are the spots the chiefs have struggled at really historically in the draft outside of a george Karloftis, like sky Moore never really manifested in anything in year one you don't know about him long term the cornell powell pick never panned out the kneeing pick hasn't panned out um some of the edges kando herring they haven't been big guys i guess herring was udfa but you look at the board if jackson smith and jigba ends up running uh, slower than what people expect. I think you could maybe get him to 31. I think if you really wanted to hold out, maybe Quentin Johnson falls if the NFL isn't as high on him, which is something that I've heard kind of thrown around, that 
most people are projecting him a mid-first-round pick. Maybe he does slide a little bit longer than that. Um, defensive end-wise, I don't think Lucas Van Ness and above, meaning Murphy, Wilson, Anderson, are going to be available. I don't think Nolan Smith is available. I also don't think he fits the Chiefs. Keon White, not really sold on him. Then you get into some tough stuff. You go Isaiah Foskey. Do you go Derek Hall? Do you go Felix from K-State? Like, those guys can start. You keep going down the position groups. Does Brian Branch fall to 31? If he does, you take him. Maybe you go with another safety there. Um, you're going to have some tight end options behind Travis Kelsey. Like, they can absolutely go pretty much wherever they want and get a guy capable of getting starter reps. The problem is, though, if the run on quarterbacks happens early, like many are expecting, and these guys do test well at their pro days, like many are expecting, the Chiefs draft plans could be spoiled. So you almost think they might have to execute a little bit of a trade-up in order to get a marquee player. But if the board does fall the right way, I think they can still have a really good uh, first couple days of the draft. We're talking with Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report. Where do you stand right now on the possibility of bringing back a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster? I've seen on Twitter you know, people kind of throwing in the idea, if you're not going to give Orlando Brown Jr. $20 million, well, they're not going to give Juju Smith-Schuster 12 to $15 million. Where do you stand on the idea of Juju coming back in Kansas City? And maybe what would be the right, right price to bring back a guy to be the number one wide receiver? Yeah, there have been rumblings turned around. And, I mean, I've caught wind of them, too, that his market's probably somewhere in, like, the 13 to $14 million range. Um, and that's more of a, a ceiling. I've heard middle to upper teens. I just don't necessarily believe that that's going to be the case. I think that the injury history with the knee, the concussions, like he's not the most durable guy. He's also six years into his career. So, like, yeah, he's 26, but he has been around for a little bit. He clearly isn't ever going to be healthy, completely healthy for a full season. Like, you can't count on that again at this point. So, spot track has him at 14.6 million dollars on like an annual basis which would put him again right in the same spot he'd be below hunter renfro below alan robinson below Cortland sutton and below adam Thielen. but he'd be comfortably ahead of Corey davis michael gallup curtis samuel nelson aguilar Devonte parker tyler boyd like a lot of those guys kind of fall in line with where i think juju smith schuster is as a player MVS is averaging $10 million per year. I think he's worth probably a third more than that. Um, so then you're getting into that $13, $14 million range. So I think the money itself is not going to be too big of a deal for the Chiefs. I do think if I had to bet now, today on March 8th, that they do bite the bullet and they do end up bringing him back on probably a three-year deal with maybe an out after two. And last question for you here, Jordan, talking about the NFL draft. If I can give you some money here and you can place down two bets, who is going number one overall and which team is selecting number one overall? Because, of course, the Bears are very open to trading that top pick. Oh, man, that is a insane question that I should have known was coming. Man, I think it's so difficult because you really don't know if Chicago wants to keep that pick. I don't buy that they want a quarterback. I buy that they're going to evaluate because that's what a smart team does. Um, I think Houston 
is going to end up moving up to one. I, I do think they're going to possibly flip-flop. I think the Colts are a team that can move up for a C.J. Stroud or an Anthony Richardson. I think the Texans are enamored with Bryce Young. And this isn't like a hashtag source like quote or anything. I just have an inkling that they are into Bryce Young and that they could move up for him. I think he could be the guy. I think personally, if I'm picking a quarterback, I'm going Anthony Richardson over anyone else just because of the upside, even though the floor is absolutely someone who's like out of football in five years. Um, but I think I would lean Houston right now. The Bears have every incentive to listen to offers for that pick. Um, so I'll go Texans right now, and I'll go Bryce Young as the number one overall pick in the 2023 NFL draft. Jordan Kyle here. Uh, I got a quick one for you. Uh, are we going to see future All-Pro Justin Ross on the field next year? Oh, my gosh, man. Kyle, good to hear your voice, first of all. Second of all, um, did you say future All-Pro? I think I did, yeah. Okay. Um, I think he will be on the field for off-season activities. I think he's going to be on the field for training camp. Um, it, it's so hard to count. Again, the Chiefs are running a risky business at wide receiver. I didn't even mention him. They have a complete group. Even John Ross is a guy that was in the picture on a futures deal of guys that you can't count on to do anything and be something and be consistent and be healthy. Like they are running an insanely high risk. Travis Kelsey is not getting any younger. You'd be hard pressed to explain that the offensive tackle situation is better. So like the chiefs offense could take a very small step back next season, but see the defense that way. And now with that said, back to your initial question, I think Russ is, mostly healthier, all the way healthy through the offseason. I think there's going to be some training camp buzz. I think he's going to make some preseason plays. But the Chiefs seem to be headed towards bringing Juju back. Tony is going to have the featured role. Sky Moore is going to have more of a featured role. And then you've still got MVS. So, yeah, Justin Ross could be the new Justin Watson. I don't think they would play the same exact role. I don't think the Chiefs would trust him necessarily, um, but I think he has a chance to make the team. I think he has a chance to be wide receiver five, wide receiver six, whatever they want to do. It's just tough for me to justify saying, hey, he's going to break out in 2023. Now, a relative breakout for UDFA could be 10 catches for 110 yards and two touchdowns or whatever, and that would be welcome production for the Chiefs. Um, love the profile, love the skill set. Just a little bit if you don't see any opportunities. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for your time as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, take care. Thanks so much, buddy. There he goes. That's Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report, breaking down a very intriguing question by our very own Kyle Collier, who deemed Justin Ross a future all-pro. Kyle, I need to hear a little bit more on that. <laughs> it kind of came out of left field here. And I don't mind it one bit. That's what I love about this show. We can have questions that do not correlate whatsoever. <laughs> I hadn't talked about Justin Ross one bit. But not only do you bring up Justin Ross, you are going to call him a future All-Pro. I know there's some sarcasm to it, but clearly you feel like there is some upside to a guy that, yes, at one point was projected to be a first-round pick, but then really a career-ending type of you know, condition nearly didn't let him fall on any team. The Chiefs took a chance on him because they saw the talent 
years back at Clemson when he was a true freshman. But why are you so high on a guy like Justin Ross making an impact next year? It's because of his years at Clemson, first of all, and that first-round talent pedigree or you know that prediction that most folks had. Now, yes, uh, that's kind of where that joke, the Justin Ross joke lies is, you know, he does have that, you know, severe risk of injury, of re-injury even. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've I've watched him play. I'm not calling myself a film anal- analyst by any means, but uh, he's a talented young man. And I'd be very intrigued to see if he actually hits the field. I think it would be a dream scenario, right? I think, for the Chiefs and Justin Ross to see him, hell, even on the field in preseason. But I would like to see what a guy like Justin Ross can do, because like you brought up, Kyle, we cannot deny the talent that he once had. And it's not like the Chiefs have been, you know, against bringing back guys who at one point in time showed immense talent. Think about a guy like Josh Gordon, who they gave a chance on and gave nearly two years to him here in Kansas City with a chance to turn it around. But sometimes those flash-in-the-pan type of things, they never come back around. But, again, the Chiefs didn't waste anything. They signed him as an undrafted free agent. He didn't take up a roster spot last year. He was on the practice squad. Nobody plucked him from the practice squad. There could be something in the works for a guy like Justin Ross because I think the most exciting thing of all, and they also brought in John Ross. You know, he was a top-ten pick right before Patrick Mahomes, one of the fastest guys you've ever seen in the NFL Combine. They take chances on guys who have shown flash-in-the-pan type of talent on these undrafted free agent type of deals. You're not breaking bank to bring them in, and it sometimes can be considered a really good move, even if they are a special teams guy. They can fill a roster spot. They can do something for you, and we've seen time and time and again Brett Veach in the front office make those right moves, and if they don't work out, you part ways, you move on. But I do think it's interesting because this will be a talking point in this offseason because of his name alone. Hell, John Ross will be a talking point, and if he can make an impact on special teams. And I think it's the fun part about the aftermath of winning a Super Bowl. We're not finagling, or we're not talking about big-name free agents or trading or contract extensions like Baltimore's thing with Lamar Jackson. No, we are debating what the Chiefs are going to do with the 31st pick in the NFL draft and if Justin Ross will make an impact in 2023-2024. I effing love it. I absolutely love having conversations like this. It doesn't get much better than than hearing about the number five or number six or number seven wide receiver making an impact on a team that truly showed they can make a full run with this offense and be the number one scoring offense in the league using a lot of different guys. Incredible stuff in Kansas City, and I'm no genius in saying that. Right now in the Big 12 tournament, Oklahoma State is leading Oklahoma by five last time I checked. My app is actually frozen at the moment. But I believe the Pokes were up five on the Oklahoma Sooners. We will try and recap everything that had happened on Thursday and Friday when we are back on the air right here at the Power and Light District from 10 to 12 on Saturday morning. But that will wrap up another edition of the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810. WHB, I've been your host, Jack Johnson. Kyle Collier doing a great job back up in the studio. We will talk to you on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. You enjoy the Big 12 tournament, Kansas City.